If you have your Bible, uh, you can turn to James chapter 4. We are, uh, believe it or not, getting close to the end of the book of James. And uh, from my perspective, it has been a fun journey for us as we've been uh, going through the book. This last week, we uh, talked about the first half of James chapter 4, and, and I admitted to you that while I had hoped to get through all of chapter 4 in one week, it was impossible when I jumped into it and realized there's no way we can cover everything in this uh, particular text. So last week we talked about the idea of passions, whoredom, and a dirty word. And so James, at the beginning of chapter 4, just to kind of recap, talks about uh, the passions that war within us. In fact, he says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the passions that war within? So we talked about how there's in all of us these passions that, uh, that we struggle with or battle against. And often, James, as he's talking to the people, is saying that those passions led people to become, in his words, a spiritual whore. What they had begun to do is to chase after a different lover. They no longer had their affections, their heart, their passions, their directions for God for Christ, but rather began to adjust those and became friends with the world. Then we talked about the last idea, which was the dirty word, and it's the idea that James brings up in the text about repentance. The dirty word being repentance. It's a word that we don't really want to mention much in the church, or if we talk about it, we get these weird feelings when we talk about repentance. And so, for a little bit, we talked about the difference between religious repentance and gospel repentance. Religious repentance is this idea of uh, report card repentance, where we all want to get A's and B's in our relationship with God or the things that He's called us to, and yet sometimes we find ourselves getting C's, D's, and F's. And so we come crawling back in repentance and we say, God, we need to gain your favor again. And so repentance becomes a bit of an atonement on our part. We try to atone for our own sin. We try to merit our own forgiveness. Versus what the gospel communicates is that because of Jesus and what he's done for me, that I don't have to earn it. I don't have to somehow gain the favor of God, but instead I could come in humility before him and just say, God, I, I've begun to drift from your ideal. And he graciously welcomes us back. In fact, the verse that I came across this week that I think just sums up that idea is found in Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7. It says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. That idea of repentance. That he may have compassion on him and to our God. For he will abundantly pardon. And we wrapped up last week talking about kind of that last line, that he gives a greater grace, that he's willing to abundantly pardon. In fact, he promises it in the text. He says that grace is a promise for the humble. That if the humble come, that he guarantees he will pour out grace. And James wraps it up and says it this way, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. If you look in, I think it's verse 10, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. 
That's the, that's the picture, the idea of the opposite side of repentance. It's where we come in, we humble ourselves, and we submit to God, as the text says. And so really, today is all about James writing, verses 11 through 17, about this idea of humility and submission to God. So humility, or the humble life, is a submitted life. And so James gives us that idea in 7 through 10, and then all of 11 through 17 is designed to tell us what a submitted life looks like. So when we come to this idea of submission to God, submission wells up within some of us, again, a weird feeling. We don't like the word submission sometimes. Some of us, when we instantly think of submission, we think of uh, dominance, or in the part of other people, a sense of weakness, or being put down. Submission really is much different than that. But we have these faulty pictures or those faulty ideas of what submission is. Here's one of my faulty ideas. Whenever I hear the word submission, I get like this flashback to middle school. Okay? Kyler, let me stand up here for me for a second. I'll pick on Kyler. He's in the front row. When I was in middle school, okay, I, I was... Entering in high school, okay, ninth grade high school year, 98 pounds is what I weighed. I was a strapping young man, okay? <laughs> 98 pounds, I entered into my freshman year, and there was this game we always played. I don't know why it was a game in middle school. I don't know why I got involved with it, but it was submission or mercy. Have you ever played that before? Put your hands up here. Where what you do is you like try to bend someone else to your will, or in my case, it always looked like this. Them bending and me kind of on the ground in humility and submission, thank you, to whoever, to whoever was there. It didn't matter what kid it was. And again, I don't know why I agreed to, okay, I'll play again, sure. But I would always be like on my knees screaming, mercy, mercy, stop, stop. And then, you know, in middle school or early high school, they make you like say all kinds of stuff like, you're the greatest person ever, you're so amazing, like please let me go, and you know, and they would like, they would constantly do this, and I would play this game, and I don't know why I would play it, and I would keep losing, and so submission, that's, when I think of it, I go, oh, okay, it's just this forced kind of position that you have to just assume, but that's not at all what James is talking about in this passage. James is getting at is this idea of being submitted to God is to, literally the text, the word means to arrange under. Or it's a military term meaning to rank under. It's, it's willingly saying that I'm going to place myself under someone else's authority. That I'm going to rank myself underneath someone else. But it's much bigger than that, actually. This idea is really central. Submission is really central to the idea of discipleship. That when we honestly look at what it means to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus, what at the core we see is that a follower is someone who has an attitude of surrendering his will. That he or she willingly, voluntarily decides to put God first, or to put others first above our own interests. That's what submission is like. That's the picture that James is talking about. In many ways, it, a verse that comes to mind when I think of this idea of submission is 1 Samuel 12, 24. It says this, 
But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. The idea behind this verse is this, that God has done such amazing things for us. He's given us the greater grace, and because of that, it should cause within us this desire, this willingness, this voluntary response to say, God, I I give you my life. I surrender to you my will. I, I want what you want, God, not what I want. That's what submission is all about. That's what the submitted life is all about. And so what James does in this passage is he takes verses 11 through 17 to give us two primary examples or illustrations of what the submitted life looks like. So everything from this point on is very applicational in the text. And so my, the rest of my talk will be highly applicational because James is saying this submitted life looks like this, and he tries to spell it out for us. Okay? And he spells it out with the first idea being an idea of power. So if you have your Bible, look at verses 11 and 12 of chapter 4. He says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? James starts out and he says, very simply, first thing, don't slander. No slander against your brother. He says, brothers, do not slander one another. Now the idea of slander, very simply, is to talk down about someone. It's passing on personal facts about someone else so as to injure them or to demean them or to put them down. I mean, you you know when you hear slander. It's pretty obvious because this is generally how the beginning of the phrase starts. It goes something like this. Now stop me if I'm wrong, but she is so... get the idea. Or I don't mean to be critical, but he is such. Maybe you've heard this line. I don't know if I should tell you this, but this is probably my favorite. This is just between the two of us, okay? And the other 40 people that I said that to, right? That's what slander begins to come out. You know that it's coming when you utter those words. You know it's coming when you hear sentences started like that. But the idea really is a power play. That's why I think this is about power. Slander is about power because what begins to happen is I begin to speak about someone else in the presence of another so as to gain that person on my side or to gain their allegiance. So what happens is, I begin to speak against Josh, but what I do is I tell you. So now you and I don't like Josh, and now you're on my side. And then I gain you on my side, and then I gain you on my side, and all the way down. So now it's us against. And what I'm doing is I'm talking him down, and I'm trying to put myself in a position of power. And what slander really is about is about this idea of pride. The opposite of the submitted life. The opposite 
of the humble life. The second illustration that James gives under this idea of power is he says, no judging. He says, don't judge one another. Now, judging can get confusing at times because sometimes we have uh, used the passage in, I think it's Matthew, judge not lest you be judged, and we throw that out all the time. You know, you're speeding and, you know, my son goes, hey, Dad, you're over the speed limit. Judge not lest you be judged, you know? Like, you, you just, you just want to throw it out for everything. And that's, that's not the point, okay? That's not the point of the passage. James is saying, in this particular context, um, that judging is not confronting about sin or not dealing with an issue where you know someone is not walking the way God desires. In fact, in James chapter 5, later on it says... Whoever can save brother from sin saves his soul and rescues him from a multitude of sins. So it's not saying, hey, we need to help someone in the midst of sin. That's not the point. The point James is getting at here in this context is that judging is criticizing someone or looking down on that someone because of jealousy, bitterness, selfish ambition. It's all of those things instead of building someone up. It's meant to divide. It's meant to separate. It's meant to disempower. That's the picture that James is getting at. And what, he, what James is saying is there's a disconnect right now in your life, as he's writing. Because what you should have, friendship with God is a humble posture. Friendship with the world is a posture that begins to see you slandering and judging. And again, I think slandering and judging are both designed or both show this idea of power where we try to disempower someone else. Slander talks someone down and begins to rise me up. Judging separates me from other people, trying to distance myself, saying, look at me over here versus look at them over there. Both of those positions are designed to rise me up push you down, and make it about power, make it about pride, make it about significance in myself. And James says the humble one doesn't grasp for those kinds of things, but the friend of the world, the proud one, does. So someone that is not living a submitted life is someone who's seeking to be the final authority. Someone who's looking to gain control over situations and people craving recognition and notoriety, considering themselves more important than others. Those are all pictures of symptoms of people who are grabbing for power versus being submitted. And that grab for power is rooted in pride. But James is saying the opposite of that. The humble life is a life that's free Free from the need to win an argument. The humble life is free from putting others down. Humble life is free from speaking about ourselves so that we can make ourselves look good. James is saying, submit your life to God. Because that submitted life looks like a humble life. He then moves into this next section. On planning, verses 13 through 16. 
He says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. James starts off this section where he's talking about planning, and he says, come now, or listen up. And he's directly speaking to the people, and he says, listen up, you who say these kinds of things. And he's talking directly to their planning, the way they organize and structure their life. And he says, some of you are planning like this. And he describes it. He said, you, you pick, or they pick their time, today or tomorrow. They pick their place, this city or that. They pick their length. We're going to be there about a year. They pick the activity. We're going to carry on business, and they pick the result or the outcome. There's going to be a financial profit. So James says they they are picking these things. He's using a very specific illustration as he talks to the people. What you notice very clear in this text, and very clear from that example, is that they picked something. They decided the outcome. They decided when it was going to happen. They decided where it was going to happen. They decided who was going to be involved. They, they, they. What you notice is absent from the passage, and what James is getting at is God is absent. That God wasn't included in the plan. That they've begun to make life decisions independent of God. And what that was revealing was a self-sufficiency. That was revealing a life disconnected from God. Which was revealing this very contrast that he's talking about. This is what a submitted life looks like. This is what a proud life looks like. So if you're not submitting your planning to God, he's saying, in essence, you're prideful. You've begun to dictate your own plans. And James, in a very kind way, says that's stupid. It's stupid. And he gives us two reasons that it's stupid. Reason number one, life is uncertain. He says, you do not even know what tomorrow is going to bring. How can you plan all of these things out in your life? You think you have the future planned. You think you know what next year will bring. You think you know how long you'll have your job. You think you know how long you'll have your health. And James is saying, listen, you don't even know what tomorrow brings. It started getting me thinking, how many times do we predict the future and come up far short? Let me give you a couple examples. Tom Watson, chairman of IBM, made this statement. I think the world, there's a market for about five computers. He said that in 1943. Man, only five. Some of you have five. Okay? I mean, it's crazy. Here's another one. Uh, Ken Olson, president of Digital Equipment Corporation, says there's no reason anyone would want a computer in their home. Man, bad prediction. Another one, Western Union. They were great at communicating. This was their internal memo. This telephone way too many shortcomings to be seriously considered as a means of communication. This device is inherently of no value to us. 
no value in the telephone. Next, Lee DeForest, he was an inventor. He said, while theoretically and technically television may be feasible, commercially and financially, it's an impossibility. We will never use this television. And then last, the Decca Recording Company in 1962 said this about a little known band. We don't like their sound and their guitar music is on the way out in reference to the Beatles. Planning. You have no idea what the future holds. It's uncertain. The second thing he says is life is brief. He uses an illustration to depict this. He says, who are you? You are but a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. He uses the illustration and basically says, listen, have you ever stepped out of a tent in the morning? It's cold, the air is crisp. You take your first breath. You see it, and then it fades. That's your life. It's here one moment, and it's gone the next. Or you get out of the shower, and the glass is foggy. You turn around, you look back, and all of a sudden, it's evaporated. That is your life. He says, your life is brief. Don't, don't go predicting the future apart from God. Don't try to design life independent from Him when it's uncertain and when it's brief. Instead, James says, what you ought to say is, if it is the Lord's will, we will do this or that. What James is saying is, include God in your planning. It's really simple. Include God in your planning. Now, that doesn't mean make the plans and then ask God to bless them. Right? I mean, what we want to do is we want to put the cart before the horse. We want to say, God, I just decided this, and uh, I would like you to make it better. I made this decision. It was probably a good one. And we just want you to bless it, strengthen it, enable it to happen. That's so often how we view life, isn't it? That I just, oh, I'll just make that decision. It, ma- it was logical. It made a ton of sense. And so then now, God, if you could just come through on your end, we'll be in good shape. Versus saying that I'm going to submit my plans to you, that I'm going to ask you. Because your planning really tells you a lot about your life, right? It tells you about what you believe about life, what you believe about the scriptures, what you believe about God. The decisions you make and the planning you make reveals what you believe about you even. James is saying God is not against planning, but leaving God out of planning is a problem, is what James is trying to get across. Kent Hughes made the statement this way, so pervasive is our culture's arrogant independence of God that even many, or most, Christians attend church, marry, choose their vocations, have children, buy and sell homes, and numbly ride the currents of culture without substantial reference to the will of God. See, the submitted life is the life that includes God in the decision-making. Now, you might be asking yourself the question, well, what does that look like? How do I do that? If it isn't me making the decision and God blessing it, what does it look like? Well, I actually think it's just asking God the question. Saying, God, what would you like me to do in this situation? And then having a humble enough posture, which is James' point throughout the text, 
to listen and be willing to follow. I mean, that's what James is trying to get at in this. He's saying, make your planning with God. So let me ask you a question. When you plan, do you ask God, seriously ask God what you should do? When you decide something, do you go to him as a counselor and say, God, what would you have me do in this situation? Let me give you a couple practical illustrations. Have you asked God about your house? The one you live in right now. Did you ask him if you should buy it? Did you ask him what neighborhood you should live in? Did you ask him what part of the city you should invest in? Did you ask him if he wanted you to move from the one house to the next house? Because I'm convinced that God speaks to us in these things. Now, sometimes he may say, I want you to move out of the impoverished neighborhood. Sometimes he may say, I want you to get a bigger home. Sometimes he may say, I want you to move to the suburbs. Sometimes he may say all those things, but sometimes I wonder if we ask. I wonder if we really submit it to God and say, God, what would you have me do? I overheard a conversation recently where a guy was describing to one of his friends how he and his wife had decided to buy a starter home. They bought this starter home. I love how homes get labeled. And uh, he, they bought this starter home, and then when they were in it about six months, he started praying to God and was asking God about his house. And he felt like God said to him, don't make this your starter home, make this your home. Period. Don't upgrade. And so they decided as a family, why do we need to upgrade? This is our home. Why does it have to be a starter home? Here's what I'm convinced of. If he didn't ask God that question... I'm convinced culture would have told them what to do. Culture would have told them. They would have said, upgrade. Culture would have said, stretch your payments. Culture would have said, take on a longer mortgage. Culture would have said, do whatever you need. You need a second bathroom, maybe even a third. You need a spare bedroom, right? I mean, you want to have guests over once every six months at least, right? You got to have that extra room. But see, if we don't ask, culture speaks. Let me give you another one. What about your job? Have you asked about it? Have you asked if God wants you to take the promotion? Now, some of you are going, seriously, Russ? I mean, God always wants upward mobility, doesn't he? I mean, doesn't he want me to have a better job, right? But certainly. I, don't, I ask. In your case, he may not. Or in your case, he may. I don't know. But I think we have to ask. I think we have to ask the question. I mean, ask the question about your family. Maybe have you asked about how many kids you should have? Whether you should adopt or whether you should do foster care? Have you asked about having someone in the congregation that's needy live with you? Have you asked those questions? What about your college major? Have you asked God if you should change your college major 
again? <laughs> I mean, have you asked them? I mean, really? Have you asked about what you, he wants you to study? About what kind of degree he wants you to walk away with so that you can get what kind of job he wants you to have? I, I'm convinced, again, in these kind of situations, we just go with societal norms or societal pressure. We've got to get good grades in high school so we can get into a good college. We've got to get good grades in college so we can get more school. Get good grades in more school so we can get a really good job. You ask people why you want a really good job? Most of the time they will tell you, because I want a really good job. Then you ask them again, no, really, why did you want a really good job? Is this life-giving for you? Is this what you sense God is calling you to? Is this part of the mission that you're fulfilling in this world? And generally they'll go, well, I needed to make really good money. Why did you need to make really good money? What's the point? Maybe that's what God's telling you to do, but maybe it's not. Did you ask? That's what James is getting at. Let me go after one of the ones, one of the dirty words, money. So what about money? Did, did you ask God how you're supposed to spend it? Did you ask God if you're supposed to save it? I mean, have we, have we ever decided to sit down at the end of a year? This, the end of this year is coming up. Have you ever decided to sit down at the end of the year and say, God, here's the deal. This next year is about to start. I'm going to ask you a big question. What part of my money, or your money, I should say, what part of what comes in that I have access to, what percentage do you want me to give away this next year? What percentage do you want me to give away? And then here's the deal, God. Whatever percentage you tell me, I'll give it away, and then I'll determine the rest of my budget based on that. If God says, I want you to give away 12%, okay, God, with the rest, I'm going to figure out my budget. If God says, I want you to give away 15%, Okay, God, then with the rest, I'm going to figure out my budget. Now, some of you are going, well, that's impossible. I can't do that. Well, ask. He might not give you that number. He might give you a higher one. Right? Have you asked about who to give your money to? Have you asked about giving to meet needs? Have you asked about giving to the church? Have you, I mean, the list can go on and on. Here's... Here's the point. It's amazing to me how much culture speaks if we're unwilling to ask. Culture speaks and we always choose the promotion. Culture speaks and we always look to upgrade. Culture speaks and we forego giving to the church until we've paid off debt or had the house paid down. Culture speaks and we limit our family size. Culture speaks and we just follow versus asking. And James wraps up this whole section and he says the submitted life does this. Look at the last phrase. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. It's a little proverb. James says anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. James is saying if you know not to slander and you speak down to rise yourself up, it's sin. If you know not to judge, if you know to make your decisions 
based on asking God and letting Him speak into it, if you know that it's about this humility and a submitted life, then do it. James is referring back to chapter 1, where he says, be doers of the word. It's an odd way to end a little mini-sermon that James has here in chapter 4, but that's what he does. He gets through the text and he says, listen, just do it. If you know the good that you should do, do it. Don't ask questions. Just follow. Because that's what the submitted life really looks like. Let's pray.